Now, do I believe that these stories have be, been used to bad effect because there is a war, obviously, going on between the Arabs and the Israelis? I think that's a piece of the story, sure. You can't deny that if, um, if there was peace between the Arabs and Israel, if somehow you could snap your fingers and make peace, then it would be easier to address the anti-Semitism problem. On the other hand, the reason you can't make peace is because of the anti-Semitism problem, in my view. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that a bit later. Now, many in the Muslim community who um, um, let this stuff pass who should know better. And I think that that is because they fear ostracism from their more radical peers. Uh, I think it's because in some parts of the Middle East, to stand up and say, you know, I think the Jews have a point could be a fairly dangerous thing to do. And I think that I, I you know, I don't envy somebody who has to make this battle on, um, you know, on their, on their own. And I think that explains why a lot of the more reasonable voices are coming out of the, of the West. But even here, um, it's not so easy. Now, um, the, the, so, so Morsi's comments, getting to get back to them, why were they news? Isn't this, and, and, that, and that sometimes you actually hear that used against you when you're trying to bring attention to this problem. I sometimes hear the first line of argument is, well, it's not really a problem. It's not really anti-Semitism. And then, when you convince them that it is, then they tell you, well, everybody knows that there's this anti-Semitism, so it's not news. So I'm finding that it cuts both ways. You have, on the one hand, people telling you that it doesn't exist. Then once you convince them that it exists, they say, well, we shouldn't talk about it because it's not news. And I think that um, what, what this indicates to me is that somehow there is a, um, a real unwillingness in the West to discuss all of this. And that I think that there, um, when I use the word conspiracy, I'm not using it in the sense of a secret conspiracy where people get together and, and say, let's not talk about this. What, what I think it is, is, is much more subtle. Um, I think that um, part of the problem is that um, human rights, the human rights community, um, Middle East studies professors, social scientists, even governments have been reluctant to criticize Muslims on this issue because the West is trying so hard to get along with the world of Islam and trying to broker an elusive Arab-Israeli peace deal. And there's somehow a belief that by calling too much attention to this issue, it's going to get in the way of building bridges. It's going to get in the way of building bridges. Um, I ran into this with um, Noni Darwish, who is an Arab woman, um, an Egyptian. And that when, um, I, don't, I don't know how well known she, she is, but she was the daughter of a, um, of a martyr for Islam, or someone considered a martyr, who had been killed by the Israelis. And so when she grew up, she was given special honors in Egypt as the daughter of a martyr, and she was treated, she and her family were treated fairly well by the Egyptian regime. But as she grew up, she became um, very dissatisfied, firstly, with the way women were treated, 
And, um, and then secondly, along the way, she started to think that, um, that Israel perhaps was not so terrible. So anyway, um, she moved to the United States. She ended up converting to Christianity, forming a group called Arabs for Israel, and, um, and writing, a, writing a book called Now They Call Me Infidel talking about how she had once been called the dishonored daughter of a martyr, but now she's called an infidel. And in there, um, arguing, among other things, that there's a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism in the Muslim world. So um, an, a, a number of Jewish groups tried to invite her to their college campus. She was invited to Columbia to speak. She was invited to BU. She was invited to Princeton. But the, um, they didn't all work out, these invitations. What happened with the Princeton invitation is that as soon as she was invited and it was published, she was invited by the, um, a group called Tigers for Israel and um, by, I guess, some, a, a Jewish Hillel group. And then she was also invited by a, um, another organization which sponsored bringing people with unpopular viewpoints to campus. But then the, um, the rabbi, uh, who was the head of the Hillel at Princeton, got a phone call from the, um, the imam, who was the head of the Muslim Students Organization. I may have some of the titles slightly off. And he said that she was considered hostile to Islam, and that if she came to, um, to Princeton, Muslim students were going to protest and that they would take this as an unfriendly act on the part of the Jewish students' organizations bringing her there. So she um, said that she wasn't going to tell her group what to do, but she, she was sympathetic um, to the argument. And she said she had a very good working relationship with the imam. And she had been trying very, very hard to build bridges with the Muslim community. And she didn't want to do anything that was going to jeopardize that. So she had a, um, a, board, had a meeting with her board. And everybody except for the one person who had initially come up with the idea of inviting her, um, they all with, decided we better withdraw the invitation. So they withdrew the invitation. And she was told that she. Um, um, that the Jewish groups don't want to invite her anymore. So as soon as the Jewish groups decided they didn't want to invite her anymore, then what happened was that the, um, the group that was going to sponsor unpopular viewpoints on campus, they decided, well, we don't want to invite her either anymore. And then what happened is that the Republican um, um, student organization said, well, we want to bring her. And then what happened is that Princeton told them they didn't have time to arrange security. Um, and so she was um, uninvited. Now, something fairly similar happened at Columbia. Now, I don't, I don't have an insider account on any of this. I just have, I'm working off of published accounts here, and I've talked to a few people. But um, the, the situation at Columbia was, again, that she was told by the administration that they didn't have enough lead time to arrange security for her. So she had already come across the country and um, she was from California to New York, and they couldn't meet at Columbia, so she had to take her group and go meet at a restaurant um, you know, uptown. And so that's where her meeting took place there. Now, when she spoke at BU, she actually was allowed to speak, but as a protest, um, there was a fire in the bathroom. And, that some, um, and at least it was um, described by some as, as a protest associated with the event. So she is pretty much um, regarded 
um, certainly by the left, as persona non grata. Now, I might add that her second book, where she talks about Islam, she is very critical of the religion. And she is not just critical of radical Islam, she's critical of Islam as a religion. She's not, in my view, racist or bigoted. She's being critical of it in the same way that a convert out of a religion, someone leaving Judaism, someone leaving Christianity, who um, has, wants to make their arguments about what they found unsatisfactory about the religion. So, um, so that is, that's part of, the, um, part of it there. Now, um, I'm running out of time. I want to make um, a couple more points. One is, why does all this matter? Why does Muslim anti-Semitism matter? Obviously, um, this is a, a reasonably small crowd. This is not something that most Americans feel particularly engaged by this issue. And the, the body count is pretty low by 20th century standards so far. Um, we have Daniel Pearl, um, the Chabad Center in Mumbai, I would count, the plot against the synagogues in the Bronx, the, um, the attack on the Jewish Federation building in Seattle. Um, there's a guy, Warren Weinstein, who went over to help Pakistan with its de economic development, and he was kidnapped. And as far as I know, he hasn't been released. Um, they kidnapped him because he, they, sent, they sent a message out, he's got the Jew. Um, but any, anyway, um, so there, there, are, there is a body count, but it's, it's, it's a relatively low one. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that when this anti-Semitism exists, it is not first and foremost, or not even only, real Jews that they're talking about. The belief of the anti-Semites is that America is in the hands of the Jews. And so you find, you find that anti-Americanism is a very close cousin of anti-Semitism. It always has been. It was with the Nazis. It was with the Soviet Union. Um, it almost always is a, a, a pretty close cousin of anti-Americanism. Um, and so you find a guy who attacked Fort Dix, for example. He said, well, my first choice was to kill some Jews. My second choice is Fort Dix. And that, that, so you're, you're, um, then you have many non-Jews who are thought to be Jews. So, um, Daniel, uh, David Letterman, for example, received threats because he was a Jew, which he wasn't. And when Lara Logan was um, sexually uh, abused in Cairo by a large crowd, they, um, they screamed beforehand, get her, she's a Jew. And um, even, you even see Walt Disney, who I've, I've read arguments, you know, is he or isn't he an anti-Semite? Was he or wasn't he an anti-Semite? But he's regarded in many circles as a Jew. Much of the US government, you see all sorts of government officials, they say the Jew this guy, the Jew this guy, and the guy is not Jewish. Um, so that what we're talking about here is a complex of hatred that extends to Americans, it extends to non-Jews, and it's important to keep in mind that there never has been an anti-Semitic movement that was otherwise progressive. Okay, the, the, the one thing you never ever see happen is this guy's an anti-Semite, but except for that, he's kind of reasonable. Okay, it doesn't happen. And so, so anti-Semitism, in this sense, can be viewed as a canary in a coal mine. You see that phrase all the time in books on anti-Semitism. It's a sign that something broader is wrong with the polity. The other thing is, it is certainly a sign that there's something wrong with the anti-racist community. 
if you look at all the people who study um, all the textbooks on prejudice and discrimination, they don't even mention the issue. It's not even mentioned. I did a search of the social science literature for studies that deal with Muslim anti-Semitism. I did it back in 2003. There was almost nothing. Since then, I've found maybe a handful of articles, a few books. But the, the, social, the, the community of social psychologists that was so important in combating anti-black racism, so important in combating so many other forms of racism, the social scientists, and I pride myself as coming from this community of social psychologists, they have nothing to say about this. There was one article that was published, um, and there's one research team with um, Lee Jussum and Floret Cohn operating out of Rutgers and College of Staten Island. It's done a couple of articles. There's very, very little of this type of, of research which is being done. The, um, the Middle East studies professors, they don't want to hear about it. They, they are apologizing left and right for the anti-Semitism and apologizing left and right for, um, um, for Islamism and, and other forms of extremism. And, that, um, and then in, in addition to that, the human rights community. You, you, found, um, you find that the organizations that ought to be taking the lead, you have the Jewish organizations, some of which are doing a, reason, uh, you know, a good job. The Anti-Defamation League is doing a good job with this. There are, there are Jewish organizations which are doing it, but the general anti-racism, anti-prejudice organizations don't want to hear about this. Now, I might, um, I might look at some, very, very briefly, just enumerate some of the counter-arguments. I won't have time to address them, but I want to list what they are and tell, in, in a word, what I think is wrong. One argument you hear all the time, and this is a very simplistic one, is Arabs can't be anti-Semites because they're Semites. And then what this is, is simply a semantics game. Anti-Semitism, when it was formulated, was basically, it was, it was in the 1870s when Wilhelm Marr coined the term, he was basically using it because he, was, um, he wasn't Christian, but he hated Jews. And so he wanted a pseudo-scientific, well, he wanted a scientific basis. It turned out to be a pseudo-scientific basis for his anti-Jewish racism. There never has been a movement which has targeted Jews and other Semites. Um, but in any case, change the name if you want. Call it um, Jew hatred, and, and then that, problem, that argument goes away. Another argument is Muslims don't hate Jews, they hate Zionists and or Israelis. And here, if you look at the actual content of the anti-Semitic statements, you will see that the references are to the evil in the Talmud, the evil in the, um, in the Jewish Bible, the evils that existed way before the Zionists even came onto the stage. And, to the and they see Zionism as a consequence of the nefarious Jewish character. Another argument is all criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitism. The answer here is of course not. Criticism of Israel is um, a perfectly legitimate type of political criticism when it doesn't cross the line into anti-Semitism. Okay? But that doesn't mean that just because you are also criticizing Israel, you are free from being charged as an anti-Semite. Um, another argument you get is there's a little unavoidable spillover from the Arab-Israeli conflict. It's just, it's unavoidable. It's, you, it, that because of the war, you're going to get this sort of thing. 
And I think that that just disregards the whole history of what went before, if you think it's just coming out of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Another one, how would you expect people to react to all those Israeli transgressions? Well, here you have to, to refute this, you have to get into an argument about whether the Israeli transgressions somehow were of such an order as to merit the level of hostility and hatred that you see, and just what were these transgressions? So there's not a quick answer to this, but there's an answer because, um, first of all, even if those transgressions existed, it doesn't justify anti-Semitism. The argument that Islam has always provided a historic, historically provided a welcoming home for Jews. Well, Jews historically were considered dimmies or second-class citizens, and that they um, had to follow all sorts of rules that were discriminatory, and that this is just a misreading of history. Another one is to say it's historically inaccurate to say that Islam, the religion, contains the seeds of Jew hatred. Well, if you're going to argue that this is historically inaccurate, then you certainly have to make that argument, and the way Tariq Fatah is, and you have to go through all the seemingly anti-Semitic statements and show how they're not really anti-Semitic. Um, and I don't see that happening very much. The real propagators of serious anti-Semitism anti are Christians, and, that, and, the, um, and the right wing in the United States, well, there certainly is very serious anti-Semitism coming from the extreme, the militia movement, the extreme right. The, they talk all the time about Zog, the Zionist-occupied government. Those guys are, are, are pretty bad, but I think that on the basis of the evidence, you would have to say that the, the larger threat is the threat coming from Islamic anti-Semitism, and it's not an either-or proposition in any case. Um, that, that I'm painting with too broad a brush. And here I'm arguing that I'm, I'm not painting with too broad a brush. I am totally on the same page as liberal Muslims, as truly liberal Muslims. Um, Bassam Tibi, um, you know, I, I may disagree with him occasionally with some of his views about Israel. Um, Tariq Fatah, I sometimes disagree with some of his views about Israel here and there. But basically, these are guys who see um, more or less eye to eye to, um, um, or um, Khalil Mohammed um, at San Diego State is, um, is, is um, and Irshad Manji, um, you know, they're, they're not mainstream figures in um, Islamic theology, but they are people who are consider themselves believing Muslims, and they have come up with essentially similar conclusions. Um, another one is nice people don't criticize other people's religious beliefs. Well. This is tricky because I, I'm not by nature someone who likes to criticize other people's religious beliefs and I think we're better off in a world where we give everybody a lot of room <coughs> for their religious beliefs. But on the other hand, when religious beliefs are used to justify hatred, then you can't criticize the hatred without also criticizing the religious beliefs. Nobody would argue that Jews did not have a right to criticize Christian theology when it was anti-Semitic. And um, another argument is, well, shouldn't we be talking about Islamophobia in the United States? And I think that in, in many ways we should. I believe that Islamophobia does, I think that word is not a good word because it implies fear, but I think that bigotry against Muslims does exist in the United States. And I think that if I were given, do I think in the United States that I experience a warmer reception as a Jew than a typical Muslim does? I think the answer is that I do. 
And I think that if, if there's policing to be done in our own home, if there's, you know, if there's improvements, if there's, if there's a battle against that type of bigotry, then, then I think that we have to be a part of that too, but that doesn't negate the fact that this other issue is, is out there. Um, criticisms of, Islam, of Islamic anti-Semitism are Islamophobic. Well, I think that that is ridiculous. When you, where the anti-Semitism is coming from is where you have to criticize it. And that um, aren't Jews just as bigoted against Muslims? And here, I think, if you actually look at the evidence, you will find that Jews do not score as more bigoted than other um, Americans or Westerners against Muslims. They actually have, on most forms of tolerance, Jews score higher. I have seen one survey in New York City. When you're comparing Jews to other New Yorkers, who are, of course, a very liberal community, the Jews slightly scored more anti-Muslim. But that was a by like one or two percentage points, and it mean, it's comparing Jews to other liberals in New York. But everywhere else where you do these studies, you find the Jews score as more tolerant and as, um, okay, um, I'm, I am, I'll take just two more minutes. Then the uh, one other one is it's not in the best interest of interfaith cooperation. If we want to have good interfaith relations, we should talk about what we agree about. Well, I think there's an elephant in the room. I think that you can't leave this out of that discussion. And I, I think real interfaith, you have to, it might mean accepting that other people aren't perfect. And it might mean forgiving people for past anti-Semitism, but it doesn't mean tolerating present anti-Semitism or ignoring it. It's not in the best interest of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Well, here, I, I think a lot of the problem, a lot of the reason that we have this conflict going on is because the Muslim world had great difficulty tolerating the Jews' emergence from Dibi status. The Jews were treated reasonably well as long as they stayed in a um, subordinate role. But when Jews emerged as an independent nation, that contradicted some of the, belief, the deepest beliefs of Muslims because in the Muslim world, the reason there was not so much hostility against Jews as there was in Christianity is the Muslims believed that they had already defeated the Jews in the seventh century. That Muhammad had put that issue to rest. Jews were weak and Jews couldn't defend themselves and Islam had triumphed. And once they triumphed, there was occasionally room for magnanimity, but the Jews had to stay in their designated role. And I think that when Jews emerged from that designated role, into independent statehood state, um, and when they then started winning wars, it was just too much to bear, and I think that that fueled some of this anti-Semitism. So anyway, um, um, I think it's a, the whole thing, just to summarize, um, if you're asking me what can be done, I don't have a good answer. Um, and uh, I do think this is a litmus test for the West. I think it's a litmus test for the left. I think it's a litmus test for the right for the government, for human rights organizations, for the UN, for Europe. Remember, there has never been a movement that was anti-Semitic but otherwise reasonable. And so it's a challenge not only to Jews, but to, um, to all Americans. Thank you very much. So to kick off, we're going to have a Q&A session for about 30 minutes. Professor, uh, I'm not going to be here for 30 minutes. I'm going to go first. Uh, uh, I want to congratulate you for a very uh, uh, 
well-supported argument. I think that's very uh, part of the uh, problem addressing this is that um, you know that, that we fly off the handle and we're not sticking to facts. And you know, one of the things that somebody's I somebody's mumbling. I guess I'm I guess I'm mumbling. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to stand up. I just want to come. I think that it, uh, what, what I particularly appreciate is the uh, proof text, the uh, very reasonable uh, exploration of that, um, and. And yet, um, you know, we can't ignore the fact that the body count is very low. What does it mean? You know, in other words, I mean, anti-Semitism really has a very good body count. Okay. And and here, I, 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 I just don't know. I'm asking you because I don't know the answer. I have what does a quick it mean? answer to that, which is that it could become very high in, um, in 10 minutes if you have this ideology wedded to nuclear weapons in Iran. Right. And that if you find this mindset, once it becomes wedded to the means of destruction, you have the ideology of, of, of mass murder here without the means of mass murder. Um, if, I, I think what the reason the body count is low is because the Israeli army is strong, because the American army is strong, and because the Iranians don't have nuclear weapons yet, and because the Hezbollah rockets thus far haven't hit their, their targets. And I think that it's because the, um, the terrorist movement has not caught on in the West. So I think that the ideology here is very dangerous, and it is a confluence of fortunate events so far which has kept the body count low. It's not a... Um, it's, it's not self-contained or self-limited. I think that the body count would be much higher if there were, and there's also no access to Jews because the massive amount of Jews have left the countries which have the most anti-Semitic um, anti ideology here. So, um, you know, so I think that this, this is a, um, an ideology which has proved its potential in the past and that the fact that the body count is low now doesn't mean that it, it will remain so. Hi, um, so my name is Meredith Mandel, and I actually used to cover Patterson, New Jersey, for the record. So I, I yes. think I'm kind of interesting that we kind of were on the same turf. Yes. Um, I have just two questions. One is, uh, I'm curious, since you are from that neck of the woods, I mean, we know Passaic County is home to one of the largest Muslim public, uh, populations in the country. Yes. You know, I think there's like Detroit, Michigan, and then Clifton, Passaic. So I'm curious, like, how your students, who I'm assuming many come maybe from Muslim backgrounds, have um, received you and your book and sort of... Um, okay. And then two, uh, as a journalist, you know, I'm really concerned about Al Jazeera coming to America now. They're hiring 100 new jobs in New York, and I'm just wondering if there's going to be more, if you know if there's going to be more monitoring of Al Jazeera as a media outlet, because I feel like that their, their bias is, is quite uh, anti-Semitic. Um. Okay, let me, let me answer the first part. First of all, one of the places where the Protocols of the Elders of Zion appeared was in a local Patterson um, Arab newspaper. And that they, um, they published it right then and there, and then when they asked the editor, well, you know, this thing has been declared in four courts to have been a forgery, he said, well, I'm not really passing judgment on it. I want my readers to decide. So, um, uh, but as far as the question about my students is interesting because I am impressed by the diversity of the Muslim community and I am impressed by the fact that I have had 
many students who, and it possibly it's because as a professor you have the ability to frame an argument, to frame a discussion, and, but of the many students who have been reasonably responsive, who have been, um, I, I try to present my arguments respectfully and fairly, and I find that when I do, um, I have not encountered for the most part, um, hostility from students. Now, some I think some students may avoid my classes because it's pretty clear what I write about. You know, my um, the reviews of my books sometimes appear on my door, being as, as vain as other authors. But um, um, you know, so they know who I am, and they may avoid my classes. But Muslim students I've dealt with. I, I run an honors program. I've had students working with me closely. Have not been an issue. There has been one occasion where. Um, and this was after Israel um, as assassinated one of the Hamas leaders, um, I think Yassin. Um, Yassin, is that who? Which one? Is it in Gaza? No, no, somebody, uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the guys who founded um, Hamas. Um, but Yassin, or? Yeah, Yassin, yeah. They, when, when Israel killed him, this guy decided that I was personally behind it somehow. And that he sent me and. Um, he had met with me once or twice before because he said that he thought that he, he didn't like my views on Islam. He, had, um, he, he came from, from Syria and he wanted to talk to me about it and to educate me and we talked. And I thought we had reasonably friendly conversations. Um, I, I didn't convince him, he didn't convince me. Um, and um, and he, he, you know, he got a little hot once or twice, but I think that's just, that happens often when you have, have discussions about these type of topics. But then, after this assassination, he sent an email telling me that he knew what I and my Zion Nazi friends like Daniel Pipes were up to, and that we were behind this killing. And he said that he had to come to me three times to, um, to tell me um, you know, the truth about Islam. And he'd come to me two times, and that this was my third warning, or something like that. And it got, it got kind of scary. Um, but then um, we had the police look into it, and when they looked into it, they said that um, they concluded that he was religious and he was—he had his political opinions, but he wasn't dangerous. And um, they turned out to be right. And then on, on, on another occasion, um, there was an instance where somebody came into a cl my classroom with their face totally covered except um, for the, for their eyes, and they just sat there. They didn't, it was an unrelated class. I don't know what they were expecting. I was giving a class in the social psychology of falling in love. But anyway, they, um, they came in and he just sat there and um, made me very nervous and came back for a second class, sat there. I didn't know who it was with it and then never came back again. And I, um, um, I, I thought that that might have had something to do with this because they were kind of close temporarily. Um, but this is only one set of incidents in all the years there, and for the most part, I've had a few people waiting outside of classes who heard what I was saying and then came to instruct me that I had, had certain things wrong, but that was more talking about the Arab-Israeli conflict than talking about um, anti-Semitism. Yeah, person in the... Oh, Leah, you go. Yes, sir. Um, I have um, a two points. Um, the anti-Semitism today in the Muslim world is far greater than it was than 60 years ago when Jews lived in the Middle East. And part, partially, this is partially because uh, only, they, there are no more Jews practically living in, in the Arab world. 
150,000 became refugees and left. And the ordinary Muslim um, obtained his information, her information, from the, from the radio, the propaganda, the television, and so on. Um, recently, I have an uncle who teaches at City College. He helped uh, an Iraqi Muslim in his graduate program. And, and the man did say that, you know, we didn't know that they were good Jews. I mean, that's how far the isolation has become. Okay. Number two, we really have to ask ourselves, how did this anti-Semitism increase over the last 60 years? Okay, we can say yes because of the Palestinian refugee problem, but at the same time, neither the Western Jewish community nor the Israeli government publicized there were 850,000 uh, Jewish refugees from Arab countries, which I happen to be one, but that's beside the point. And um, um, the third point I'd like to make is I did meet some people from the United Nations and from uh, the West Bank, and they were complaining to me that Israel took their uh, land and left them in their house. And I said to them, well, I'm sorry, I can't really help you because we lost our land and our house. I said, but here's the difference. We knew we're never going back, whether we settled in Manchester, England, Australia, United States or Israel, we had to make our bed there, and we got on with it. And as long as you think you're going to go back, you're going to be always in between, and you'll be dissatisfied. Anyway, that's. I think your your points about the in a, the lack of contact now that there's no longer any human contact to counter propaganda, and so people are, are now forming their opinions based solely on propaganda. I think that's a good one, and I think that the the plight of Jews from the, um, the Arab and, and Muslim countries, need, of course, needs to be um, widely um, publicized. Um, now, why 60 years ago? I think that there, the, the question is, um, it, it's really a conflict over land. And if it's a conflict over land, it should be something that you can set a conflict over land, the cost to both sides has been immense. And so logically, you would want to settle, you would want to settle this and move on. If there were lawyers involved, they would say, let's settle it. Why do we need a messy trial? Okay, now this is a trial which has caused so many lives, so much destruction. So that leads me to say that we should look for some psychological reason. There's something irrational going on here which is perpetuating it. And I think that that has a lot to do with the fact that the, um, the Muslim world and has suffered a lot of blows over the last few centuries. And that these blows um, turn their, um, in, the, in the prestige of Islam and in the, um, the power of Islamic countries, that even the Ottoman Empire diminished in, in, in its power very rapidly. So by the time you get to, um, to the emergence of Israel, you have Muslim collective self-esteem pretty low. There, um, and then you have nationalist movements that have let down the, um, the, um, the Arabs and other Muslims left and right, and you have all sorts of failed dreams. You have a failed dream of um, pan-Arabism. You have all sorts of things going wrong. And at the very same time, you have the Jews emerging into a new positive vision. And that these were the Jews which the religious tradition had taught were a defeated entity. 
and were, were so far beneath Muslims that they were beneath notice. And now emerging as an independent nation and then winning a war, um, there was no, the frame of mind wasn't there to say, let's cut a deal. Logically, you should cut it. Even after you lose a war, you want to cut a deal. And um, you, want, you, know, you, you might want to hold out for better terms, but the terms would have, would have, um, the terms would have been there had they, had they um, insisted. And so why didn't they accept the deal? I think it was because it would have required a narcissistic injury at such a level, a collective injury to the self-esteem or the, um, the, self, the sense of self-worth that would have been too hard to bear. And, and, and that's at least, I think, part of it. I'd like to ask you a question. Yeah. So, you, so, this, so this, was, this is a good explanation from a social psychological perspective, social psychology. So I study ideology. From an ideological perspective, is it really sort of this you know, trauma, narcissism and, uh, going on, or is it sort of an Eastern perception of history and of time? Our sense of time and space is very quick. You know, Michael Jackson is an old, uh, old-time singer. He's no longer cool. Popular music trends change very quickly here. Their sense of time and space is different. And ideologically, politically, for a non-practicing Muslim to have self-control, to have self-determination over Islamic land is a sin. It's unacceptable. And the rise of radical Islam, of, of political Islam, which is anti-Western, is rising with the help, as you pointed out in your lecture, by Western interests. So how is it possible the Muslim Brotherhood can't make peace with, it's not just the Jews, with any entity that is a non-practicing, you know, not practicing Islamic State. What if, there, what if there had been some responsible leaders in the um, in the Arab world, or in in um, and that and that they had and then instead of getting Nasser, they got somebody who really wanted to build the country without the hatred and to move forward and to cut a deal at a critical point. He had enough power that he could have pulled something like that off. And I think a key judgment like that, a key move like that, and you wouldn't be hearing so much from this um, this tradition going way, way back. I think that it, you know you could, there could have been an intervention like that, or what if um, instead of you know, or the Shah tried to um, to modernize, but he did it in a very heavy-handed and, and brutal way in Iran. But what if somebody had managed to pull that off? They were getting close to a. Um, a more modern per perception, then I don't know if we would still be thinking that this was so inevitable that this old time mentality was, was going to. So, well, you, you go ahead. I, I keep forgetting. <laughs> you do it. Is, is there not a. Uh, excuse me, the, the woman in the blue sweater. And, sorry. Maybe you both could comment on it. Um, I'm a graduate of Yale, so I went to some of the events that you had held there, and then the institute that you headed up was closed uh, at Yale. Um, and I worked at Columbia Hillel and a number of years ago, and there's been a lot, the legacy of Edward Said and other things on campus that uh, became rather extreme. I also lived in Iran and taught the Jewish community there. I'm just curious, the social psychology of the faculty at universities now, Jewish, non-Jewish, the whole atmosphere of dealing not only with the Arab-Israeli conflict, but even acknowledging that anti-Semitism exists, and it's not so much in the United States than in Europe and elsewhere. If both of you could comment, it seems to me that if you were a liberal arts professor on some faculty, 
you would be intimidated about giving some of the talks that you're giving right now. The fact that you're in psychology or the medical faculty or others are more immune from criticism from their fellow faculty members than if you were in the arts and sciences area. Oh. It's a disturbing trend, so could you comment on that? Okay, well, just to say first, absolutely what, um, what, what you just said. I mean, I, the political science department at my college invited Norman Finkelstein recently and unanimously voted to sponsor the talk. And the, um, the provost of the college also sponsored the talk. And the Gandhian Peace Forum sponsored the talk. And this is a guy who um, thinks Hezbollah has a, a progressive vision. Um, so, you know, it, it definitely helps to be in psychology where people tend to be um, liberal in the sense of liberal rather than liberal in the sense of ideologically absorbed in these, um, in these, these, these radical ways of, of viewing things. Um, that's one thing. Another thing is that I'm at William Patterson and I've published a whole lot of books and that gives me some protection over being at a, um, at a more competitive institution and the idea that I don't plan on moving anywhere has given, you know, I'm tenured and I'm a full professor and I'm where I'm going to be so I don't have to watch the way that the winds are blowing as much. But if I were a young professor starting out now, you couldn't touch these topics any, in anything near the, um, the the right departments. You'd have to do it from medicine or from somewhere else. And I think just to add, if I may, uh, recently I heard a story, a young woman who's, um, she just became an assistant professor. She's graduated from, a, she has an Oxbridge education. She's publishing her second book, speaks many languages. She's at a, a very fancy university entry level position. And she wanted to do a conference on anti-Semitism. She didn't say what the subject was specifically or who she wanted to invite. And she approached ISGAP to see if we could help her out. And I said, of course, we could have you And she told her mentor, who's um, a sympathetic figure to these issues, and the, the mentor, tenured professor, told her that if you do this symposium, your career in this country will be finished. Finished. Two of her junior colleagues, who heard that she was thinking about doing this ghastly thing of engaging a, having a symposium on, on anti-Semitism, told her that they were pro-Palestinian, and if she does this, that she would be destroyed. This is happening today in the finest universities in this country. country this, this country is selling its universities, and it's selling its media to some of the most pernicious, horrific, anti-Semitic, genocidal anti-Semites, and as Neil was saying convincingly, once the, the Jews, and this issue is the canary in the coal mine, because the people who want to exterminate the Jews, literally, also want to subjugate women, they want to kill gay people, they want to do away with religious pluralism, they want to do away with notions of citizenship that everybody in this room, whether you're right wing, left wing, or whatever country you come from, I'm sure we'd all kind of agree upon. And that this reactionary social movement, because of oil, because of all sorts of political interests, is being shoved, as Neil says, under the carpet. And what's worse, if I may, give me 30 more seconds, is that there's a philosophical crisis. So the postmodernist, Foucault, who supported the Iranian Revolution, by the way, as did Edward Said, imagine, they supported the Iranian Revolution, that they have critiqued the canon, the Western white canon, and it's the justification of colonialism and racism, and I think 
rightfully, cultural studies, the work of uh, Stuart Hall and other cultural critics, I think is very important, and we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But we need to critique the critique. That the fact that if you mention anti-Semitism in, in an Ivy League school or in a good Oxbridge Western Sarabonne University, you are perceived as racist, you're perceived, uh, perceived as right-wing and fascistic. And the, the, the mainstream academic critique, if you go to the best school of journalism, the best social science schools, you are trained because of this postmodern Edward Sadian canon to perceive Israel as a racist apartheid state. And if you are a liberal, human rights-minded person, and if Israel is this racist apartheid state, you are morally obligated to dismantle it. And if any kids on campus go to Hillel that is pro apartheid state, they are the enemy. They are the enemy in your midst. They are the racist, fascist that need to be attacked. And this is the new anti-Semitism. Contemporary anti-Semitism demonizes Israel and it's demonizing all the communities in the, in the Western world and in, 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 in it's rapidly increasing. And our intellectuals, as, as Neil correctly says, the, the, the media of record cannot deal with this issue. And the catastrophe of anti-Semitism in its time, we've been never able in its time to address the anti-Semitism. So today we can talk about Christian anti-Semitism, but if you did centuries ago, you were, you were nailed to a cross or you were, you were eliminated. If you were anti-racist, anti-Semitism of the, the 20th century, you were an enemy of the, of the people. Today, if you talk about these issues, you have no future in the academy. You cannot be a journalist. You are perceived as a, you know, an outsider. Now, I don't, I don't understand how I became perceived as a conservative. I've been spending met my entire career studying racism, discrimination. I was involved in um, in every possible way in opposing um, racism. I, I come down. Um, I'm against anti-Muslim bigotry, the whole thing. I'll just say, you'll just interrupt, I'm sorry. I, I was the chairperson of the African National Congress Solidarity Committee of the United Kingdom and of Canada, and I was working with the leadership of the ANC. I was fighting for indigenous people's rights in Canada. The, and, and so I come from this human rights background, and I am, you know. And, yes. May, may I come in? I, I'm a student at Yale who went to the provost at my last reunion and say, why was Charles Small's outfit? You know, why was this uh, gone from campus? Partly because they had a conference that had to do with Iran and anti-Semitism coming out of Iran. And I've lived in Iran, I taught the Jewish community, and there was anti-Semitism coming out of Iran, but the academy can't face it. It's a very worrying concern because many of my friends who are not on campuses in my age group, moderate Jewish people, have no idea what's going on with the liberal arts faculty at universities now. And we are not conservative people, but the label will be applied to you because that will delegitimize your voice on campus. And it's very, very concerning because it's a trend that has, I think that's financed, and I think it's a trend that will continue. And it's a very uh, concerning one. Agreed, unfortunately. So the gentleman of the keyboard. Yes, hi. Um, I really appreciate that you're bringing a psychological perspective to this issue, and um, I wanted to just check out with you David Price Jones and some of the stuff that he's written around the issue of honor. I think it's very hard uh, for Western to understand this, and if I'm not asking too many things at once, 
I am really struck by these people that I would call at some level Muslim dissidents. Uh, you know, Nomi Darwish and Ayan Hershey Ali are sort of, they're now apostates in a sense, but then you've got people who are still inside the fold. Is it surprising that we don't have more Muslim dissidents or people that are willing to speak out considering that there are 1.2 billion Muslims in the world? Or maybe this is just how being a dissident is in human reality regardless of the cultural or religious group. But if you could talk about from a psychological perspective, um, maybe why we don't see as many dissidents uh, as we would like on this issue. Well, I've, I've got to believe that there are a lot more than, than you see and hear, and that you do hear a lot of people who speak very reasonably about these issues privately. So I think that um, among people, um, and it, I, at the end of my book, I do an analysis of of Muslim um, enemies of anti-Semitism, and I divide them into a lot of categories. There are some who object um, just to the term bigotry, um, to the term anti-Semitism. They say we're not anti-Semites, but then in every way they look like it, they just don't like the language. Then there are, there's everything from that to genuine opponents of anti-Semitism, and there's all the gradations along the way. Um, but I think that in terms of genuine enemies of anti-Semitism, there are a lot. But that in any large group, um, the, um, particularly when you're talking about in the Middle East, it's hard to talk against the majority. Um, it's, not, it's not an open society. It's not a place where open debate is tolerated on this issue. You're, you're going to be viewed as a traitor. If you, you're going to be, and because, and, and when you add in, when you kind of superimpose the Arab-Israeli conflict on top of it, if you say that you're against anti-Semitism, it could sound like you're pro-Israel, and if your country is anti-Israel, then you're like a traitor against the state. So I guess, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of psychological forces which are keeping people who are genuinely liberal from expressing their their concern. Now, I have seen analyses of the liberals in Egypt, which have argued that there's even anti, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, a series of articles, which was saying that even among the liberals who were, this was prior to Morsi's emergence as, as presidents, but even among the liberals who were competing with him, there was a fair amount of hostility to the Jews, but there's also a fair amount of people who were uncomfortable with it. So I think it's out there. I think people aren't expressing it that much, and I think it's partly because um, if you become perceived too much as a friend of the Jews, then the, the crazies who are out there, the real extremists, could target you. So I'm sorry, we, we're, we have a strict limit to end at 8 o'clock, I just realized it's a few minutes after 8, so we're going to have to end it here, unfortunately. So Neil, on behalf of everybody, thank you very much. It was a wonderful evening. I have them up here.